Good morning, church. The word of God from 1 Samuel. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. As they were coming home, when David returned from striking down the Philistine, the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. Then David fled from Nioth in Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing, either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? And is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall, sur he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David and with, his, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, "'Run and find the arrows that I shoot.' As the boy ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master. But the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Altogether, the grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Thank you, Zach. Would you remain standing as we just commend this time to the Lord in prayer? Lord... Um, thank you for just the privilege of hearing your word, but we confess to you that um, this ancient story 
is hard and mysterious, and it's not always immediately obvious, Lord, to us um, what you're calling us to or what you're calling us to believe or to see. And so, Lord, this morning, we just ask that you would um, open the eyes of our heart, that you would illumine the sacred scriptures. And um, as David and Jonathan's hearts were knit together, Lord, this morning, knit our heart to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Well, good morning. If I haven't had the pleasure of meeting you, my name's Ronnie. I'm a pastor here at Denver Prez. Um, if you were with us last week, uh, you'll remember that we studied this same passage. We shortened it just a little bit by taking out chapter 19, but still pretty extensive. And we learned that this ancient story about Jonathan and David has been the model of spiritual friendship for 3,000 years. And that story of friendship is beautiful, uh, but I want to suggest to you that it's even more than meets the eye. It's even more sacred than that. The story of David and Jonathan is like a living parable. It's a living parable of the love that is shared within the Godhead. (laughs) See, Friendship is inherent and central to what God is. To to use a fancy word, it's his ontology. I know that when we uh, begin to talk about Trinitarian theology, it can kind of make our brain explode. But the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, has, it has existed eternally within an unbreakable bond of mutual and perfect love. And when we learn from the Bible that from an overflow of this triune love, all creation was made, and specifically humans, and they were made in God's image. Which means, for you and me, that we were made We were designed to live inside of communal and friendship love. So like in Genesis, as God the creator was making all things, right? There's this repeating refrain, if you'll remember it. God would do something and then the refrain, it was good. God would do something and it was good. And God would do something and it was very good. And the first time that you hear the words, and it was not good, was when? When God looked at Adam and said, it is not good that Adam, that man should be alone. This was not romantic love that they're speaking of, that he's speaking of. This is soul companionship. This is friendship love. These words that it is not good are so important because those words are given to us before Genesis 3, before the fall, before sin and corruption and betrayal ever happens in the Bible. We see that something is not good. It is incomplete. Jonathan Edwards, the American Puritan, he says, evidently, God has made us to need others besides himself. 
this need for soul companionship is an intrinsic part of who we are. And the Bible absolutely prioritizes it above romantic love. I mean, why is loneliness so dehumanizing? I mean, why is solitary confinement considered torture? Why is it you can literally put a human being in a room, shut them off from all other people, do nothing else except lock them in there, and that person will go absolutely crazy? You know, I like to cite our culture, uh, our culture prophets, our modern cultural po- prophets. Uh, today's no different. Michael Scott from The Office. Uh, if you don't know that show, of course you know that show. Michael Scott's the branch manager of this, um, you know, just paper distributor. He um, implements at The Office a bring your kid to work day. And... Uh, Michael Scott has no kids, and so what he does is he brings a video of himself when he was like in first or second grade, so he brings himself to work, and in the video, he shows like the, you know, like the fourth wall, the camera, and it's little Michael Scott saying, when I grow up, I want to get married so that I can have a hundred kids so that I can, I can have a hundred friends, and no one can say no to being my friend. Have you ever felt lonely? Yes, you have. You feel lonely not because something is wrong with you. You feel lonely because you are designed like God. And friendship with God and with others is what makes us human. And when there is an absence of friendship, your soul can become disfigured. So during the COVID lockdown, if you can think about like the first third of what, 2020, uh, my family, we developed this rhythm. We prepared and ate dinner together every night. We cleaned up together. I uh, read a chapter of a book out loud to all my kids. And then we watched a movie together. So we watched like a lot of movies. And Amanda and I had a thought. We thought, wouldn't it be great if our kids could begin to watch the movies that we watched when we were growing up? And so at the very top of that list was Goonies. And uh, Goonies, just like a little parental note, how I remembered it. And then what I'm seeing with my kids right there, we're like, whoa, don't remember all of those little touchy parts of it. But here we are. If you don't know the movie Goonies, it's a story about a group of kids. They find a treasure map. Uh, and they set out to find this hidden treasure. But of course, there is this uh, family of criminals who, who want the same thing. Now, I didn't realize this, but there is this huge theme in Goonies that's taken straight from the movie, The Bride of Frankenstein. Uh, so The Bride of Frankenstein is the sequel to the original Frankenstein movie, which is based on Mary Shelley's novel, The, Franken- or, uh, yeah, the Frankenstein. So, um, so... In The Bride of Frankenstein, this movie, you, you guys know, the monster escapes the capture of this like very violent mob who want to kill him because they're afraid of him. And, and the monster runs off into the forest. And uh, he, as he's entering the forest, he hears a violin playing. It's coming from this cottage, and it's like the Ave Maria. And so the, the monster enters the cottage, and inside is a blind man. And he's a hermit, like a, like a religious hermit. And uh, because the hermit is blind, he can't see that the monster is disfigured. But immediately he thanks God 
for sending him a friend. And the two develop a meaningful friendship. The hermit teaches the monster to speak. He learns the word good. He learns the word friend. And the two needed each other. And as a result of their friendship, the monster's humanity is being restored. You're you're starting to see him as a human. Now, this is going to blow your mind, but that is a major plot line in Goonies. (laughs) Like, so... If you'll remember, one of those kids on the treasure hunt, his name is Chunk. Remember Chunk? And so Chunk gets captured by the the family of criminals, but one of the family members is this extremely tall, strong, but he's a disfigured man named Sloth, right? So Sloth is treated like a monster, but through a series of events, Chunk and Sloth become friends. So before, Sloth acted like a monster, but by way of Chunk and Sloth's friendship, Sloth becomes more human. And in fact, the, the, the movie ends with him actually being the hero of the film. This theme of friendship humanizing us, it, it, it's so present in our soul that it makes its way into our movies and into the stories that we tell because friendship is humanizing. We were designed for it. And loneliness is dehumanizing. And so great stories remind us of this, tru- of this truth. So We need to figure out friendship. That's why I'm spending two sermons on this. Thankfully, we're going to go back into this ancient story of Jonathan and David. We're going to mine it, see if it gives us insight on how to have this friendship in a way that's deeper than the cultural recipe that we're getting from our culture. Because whatever it is we're getting from our culture, it's not working. So if you weren't um, here with us last week, let me just quickly summarize Uh, the passage. So there is this king. He's the first king of Israel. His name is Saul. Saul had a son. His name is Jonathan. Jonathan is the heir apparent. But years earlier, God anointed David, not Jonathan, to be the next king of Israel. And David was this wildly successful uh, soldier and really successful in everything he did. After, if you'll remember, saving Israel from their oppressors, the, the, the Philistines, by slaying the giant, remember Goliath. After that, David's enlisted into Saul's army and hands down, he is the best, most successful soldier. And in fact, there's this instant billboard top 100 hit that you get right away. You see it in verse 7. The, it says, the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down thousands, but David, his 10,000s. Like with David, you get 10x. Saul became pathologically jealous and murderous towards David. And time and time again, Saul is trying to murder David, but how was he saved? And we saw it multiple times this morning. By the best, by the friendship of his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan loved David more than he loved the crown. And Jonathan and David trust God together and, and, and it knit their souls to one another in friendship. So these three chapters, 18, 19, and 20, represent some of the, they really they represent some of the hardest years of David's life. I mean, he's going to write some of the darkest psalms. You know how some of those psalms are dark? Those are written by David in this time of his life. And yet, although they were hard, David would thrive. How? 
How? By the power of friendship. So last week we looked at that, the power of friendship, how it gives, how friendship has the power to thwart evil and to endure hardships. This morning, one more point. We're going to evaluate how friendship is covenantal. So last week was one point, and this week is also just one long point. Friendship is covenantal. So one of the unique features of the story is how these two men took vows to one another. So the ancients will call this the yoke of friendship. So do you know what a yoke is? Um, a yoke is that bar that you would put across two oxen as they're plowing a field. And the idea is that by yoking two oxen together, they can share the load, right? And sometimes one ox is doing more work than the other, but that's why they need each other. Because when one is weak, it's pulling the other and, and vice versa. But together, they'd accomplish way more than they could alone to you know, do their job to plow the field. So within this metaphor of a yoke, what is the yoke in friendship? That yoke is a covenant, promises that are made to each other that bind them together. And that's what you see in our passage today. So you'll see at the very outset, look there in chapter 18, verse 3. It says, Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then in chapter 20, verses 16 and 17, it says, Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. So it's important to note that they, they verbalize their commitment to one another. So as the prince, Jonathan knows that David is a threat to his kingship. But Jonathan was more committed to David than he was to himself. And Jonathan took vows and, and repeatedly risks his life for his friend to protect him. So let me see if I can't kind of shore up why these vows are so disruptive or foreign to us, to us Denverites with kind of modern notions of friendship. We tend to think about friendship in terms of um, personal preference. Uh, because friendship is voluntary in nature, it's, it's uh, vulnerable to disillusion, right? Whenever friends get tired of one another. But should we always think of friendship as completely voluntary and with no true obligations? Because we can say with certainty that both David and Jonathan saw their friendship in concrete commitments, right? Because they took vows, right? So should we, as moderns, should we at least entertain the idea that our friendships should be more stable and more binding than they are? Should we at least think of them in the same way that we think of siblings who are stuck with each other no matter what? If the answer is yes, then what should we learn from the story between David and Jonathan? Preparing for this sermon, I uh, was directed to an essay written by Carrie English. This was about 10 years ago. She's, um, she writes for the Boston Globe, and she writes an article called a Bridesmaid's Lament. Let me read this to you. Because her best friend's getting married. 
she's lamenting the absence of any acceptable way in our culture to express the sadness of this new bond. She says, these are her words. In the vows that they wrote, the bride and groom gushed about how lucky they were to have found someone who loved them unconditionally, someone who made any place home, someone who was their best friend. And I stood there thinking, why not me? She loves me unconditionally. The house we shared always felt like home. And I thought we were best friends. Surely I can't be the only person who feels like weddings are a bit of rejection. Two people announcing in public that they love each other more than they love you. Being platonically dumped wouldn't be so bad if people would acknowledge you have the right to be platonically heartbroken. But it's just not a part of our vocabulary. However much our society may pay lip service to friendship, the fact remains that the only love that it considers important, important enough to merit a huge public celebration, is romantic love. And Carrie English, she concludes this essay making very powerful, a powerful recommendation. She tells us to make vows in our friendship. And to like to celebrate with this awesome party. That is to say, make promises to one another and celebrate. You guys, this is why, at least one of the primary reasons why in church membership, we take vows to one another. Because we want this church not just to be this place where you do like cold religion, not to be the service of like fast food spirituality. We want this to be a family of covenantal friendships. Like we're in, we're casting our lot in with one another. And if you're having a hard time, man, we're gonna be there for you. Like we're gonna put our money where our mouth is. We're in. And when we celebrate vows and we declare our loyalty to one another, wouldn't that embody the beauty and the seriousness of friendship that's represented in this story between David and Jonathan. So let me ask again, why is this vision of friendship so difficult for us? I cited last week a theologian from Australia, Benjamin Myers. Let me do that one more time. This is what he says in responding to that question. He says, in our Western and individualistic society, we have propagated the mythology of autonomy or freedom. That is to say, we believe that the less encumbered or less accountable and anchored we are to a particular relationship, the better off we are to find our truest self, thus secure happiness. We believe the myth that self-discovery and self-realization comes from being autonomous with no restraints. And if that were true, the kind of friendship that is covenantal and biblical would be seen as a liability instead of an asset. And so what do we do? We make no commitments we make no promises. We try to remain as free as possible so that no one can tell us what to do. And guess what? We are miserable and lonely. 
Our best friends have become fictional characters on Netflix that we can turn on and off whenever we want. I mean, we are free, but we are lonely. You know, when we, when, when I was younger, we all suffered from FOMO. Y'all know what that is? Fear of missing out. We said yes to everything because we didn't want to miss out on anything. But now, sociologists tell us, people suffer from FOBO. You know what that is? Fear of better options. Now we say no to everything because we don't want to be tied down. We don't commit. We make no promises to each other, and it is killing us slowly. But what if finding ourselves does not come through freedom and autonomy, but rather through binding ourselves to one another through selfless and covenantal friendship? The story of David and Jonathan emphasizes that you and I were made for covenantal friendship. So what, what could covenantal friendship, in, a, in addition to the, this elevated commitment, what, would it, what could it look like? I want to suggest to us, we have these hints in this passage. Uh, there's this receiving and this revealing component. First, receiving. So at the very beginning of our passage in 18, the text tells us, right, verse 1, that the soul of Jonathan and the soul of David were knit together. Then, of course, we read earlier, verse 3, that they made a covenant Uh, Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And then what happens? What does that look like? Because that's not just emotions or feelings. Verse 4, chapter 18 says, And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. So like all the commentators note how significant that act was, right? Because the clothes make the man. And there he is giving him his royal garb. So in a world of competition, he's giving up his royal garb, his royal armor, and he's clothing his friend. To use like New Testament language, Jonathan is looking out for the interests of the other above his own, above his own interests. And guess what? David receives it. Like David can't be what he is supposed to be, what God has actually ordained him to be without the support of his friend. And this receiving shows us intense dependence. So that that is the farthest thing from autonomy, right? Because we don't like being indebted to people, but friendship says, I am absolutely indebted to you. In fact, I can't be who I am supposed to be without you. I desperately need you. This isn't neediness. This is covenantal friendship. And second, there's not only a receiving, but a revealing. So in chapter 20... David's having a really hard time, and he begins to bare his soul. Look at those first four four verses in chapter 20. David says, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? And he said to him, Far from it, you shall not die. 
Behold, my father does nothing either great or small without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David bowed again, saying, your father knows. He knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there's but a step between me and death. And Jonathan said to David, whatever you say, I'll do for you. So that's like... Very rare in the Old Testament, this extended dialogue, right? So like the action of the story starts slowing down and it's like soul revealing and and his anxiety, right, is coming out. David is revealing his heart and he needs a friend to bear it. Revealing your heart to a friend And allowing them to bear your anxiety is the mark of a deep friendship, right? So if all you do is receive and listen, that's not friendship. You're a therapist, and therapists are great, but you don't want someone to have to pay to be your friend, right? We need to reveal deeply, expecting that we're not going to be rejected. Now, you can right? You can't be a revealer only without receiving, because if you do that, you need to learn to, right, like talk less, listen more, be ready to take on burdens, right? There has to be a mutuality to it. But that's what it's calling, a receiving and a revealing that you see really present and meaningful, deep covenantal friendships. Now, I know, I know that language of making promises to one another. Covenantal friendship can sound scary or risky. And you got to ask, like, do you have a friend that goes that deep? (laughs) Like, do you have a friend that goes that deep? And because I know it's scary, let me conclude just with one final thought. Thank you for your attention. We, We know that friendship is powerful. We learned that last week. But this idea that friendship should be covenantal, you know, the kinds of friendships that we long to see at Denver Prez, right? Like, or what our souls desperately want here, that, it just seems like a step too far. Like, I'd, I'd rather just show up on a Sunday, maybe tip the offering plate or something like that, and just kind of be done with it. But man, you're calling me to something deeper. And we don't like making commitments and how can we even know that this model of friendship is the best way to live life? And I'm not even asking, where do I find a friend like that? What I'm asking is, how do I become a friend like that? And here is the answer. You have to remember and internalize and bury deep in your soul the covenant that God has made with you. And that's what this whole service is about, what this whole thing is pointing to, that Jesus Christ has fully yoked himself in friendship to you. And and that should absolutely make, make you speechless. If you could believe even an ounce of that, it would make you speechless. See, this whole story of Jonathan and what an amazing friend he is means nothing if you don't see that Jesus would become the better and more perfect 
friend, a better and more perfect Jonathan. See, Jesus, like Jonathan, took off his royal garb. But it's even more than that. He, He took off his righteousness and he clothes you with it. We are friends with God because we have received his righteous armor, right? Through the spirit, we get the whole full armor of God. Do you see how wild it is to even talk like that about the God of the universe? And not only have we received all from Jesus in him, we have a friend who has borne all. Of course, Jesus bears our anxieties as we like pour out our soul to him, but it's so much more. Jesus bears the things that we can't bear. All the guilt, all the shame, all the consequences of our choices, all of our grief, all of our sorrow. Of Jesus, the prophet Isaiah would say, surely he has borne our griefs and he has carried our sorrows. He was even wounded for our transgressions. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. Jesus received all from us. And as Jesus was ending, the, he was at the very last week of his life, as he's nearing his own cross that he knows is his, He's walking with his friends, with his disciples, and he says this. He says, greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friend. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is being coy here. He's speaking about himself because he knows that he he is on his way to a cross for them. And that's the point. Are you hearing it? Like, that's the point. Greater love has known than this that someone laid down his life for his friend. Jesus did it. He laid down his life for his friends. No longer do I call you servants, but I have called you friends, he says. And because Jesus lays down his life for you, you know you can be certain that you are friends with God. And that has to be like the absolute foundation of your entire life. And it's in the security of friendship with God that you can give yourself and yoke yourself in friendship to one another. That is how you become a friend. Not just make a friend, but become a person whose life is marked with this yoke of friendship. It's covenantal. And so we end where we began. Friendship with God vertically goes all the way through to friendship horizontally. Friendship with one another. It's powerful and it's covenantal. May our hearts have the courage to believe these words. Amen. Amen.